Yeah, be in prayer and uh, listening to that. It, it is amazing. Um, I don't know how many of you have ever had an opportunity to uh, visit Quebec. Uh, Quebec is both a province and it's also a city as well, but uh, it is a very international city. I mean, at least by uh, the n- numerous different uh, nationalities that are in attendance in that particular church, but be in prayer for them. All right, if you have your Bibles with you, uh, I would ask you to turn to First Samuel chapter 4, 1 Samuel chapter 4, and uh, I don't know if this is good or bad, but I can barely see the clock, so, but... Uh, very bad. Okay. But uh, that being said, uh, um, I want to spend some time, and I'm not going to be terribly expository about this, but we're gonna, I just want to go through this uh, chapter and just talk a little bit about it. And then uh, when we get towards the end, then I've got some practical things that I think we can all benefit from in this. But uh, if you're there, First Samuel, and I'm going to read the whole chapter, so just follow along with me. Uh, fascin- I, if you're all doing the walk with the word, we would have, uh, I think it was about two and a half weeks ago, um, this would have been in our reading schedule. And every time I read this chapter, you know, have you, who, who's ever had a bad day? Have you ever had a bad day? We all have bad days. And, and typically when you think of a bad day, I think of Job. Job had a really bad day once. But you know what? In the end, Job's day wasn't so bad. When it all, you know, well, I shouldn't say in the end of that day, but at the end of his trial, you know, things worked out for him. But here's a situation where a lot of people had a really bad day, um, and it didn't get fixed anytime soon. So let's just jump right in. First Samuel chapter 4, And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out against the Philistines to battle and pitched beside Ebenezer. And the Philistines pitched in Aphek, and the Philistines put themselves in array against Israel. And when they joined battle, Israel was smitten before the Philistines, and they slew of the army in the field about 4,000 men. It doesn't mean Israel slew 4,000 of the Philistines. The Philistines slew about 4,000 of of the Israeli soldiers. And when the people were come into camp, the elders of Israel said, Wherefore hath the Lord smitten us today before the Philistines? Let us fetch the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of Shiloh unto us, that when it cometh among us, it may save us out of the hand of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh that they might bring from thence the ark of the covenant of the Lord of the hosts, which dwelleth between the cherubims. You know what? I'll just stop there for a quick second. Of all the names that our God has, I love this one. The Lord of hosts, which dwelleth, between the cherubims. We're not going to spend any time on this tonight, but that is rich with a lot of meaning and depth. And we are thankful that we have a God that sits on a mercy seat. And we're thankful for the blood of Jesus Christ that we have atonement through him at that mercy seat. But they went to go get the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, which dwelleth between the cherubims. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. And when the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted with a great shout, so much so that the earth rang again. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, What meaneth the noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews? And they understood that the Ark of the Lord was come into the camp. And the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God is come into the camp. And they said, Woe unto us! For here hath not been such a thing hitherto. Woe unto us, who shall deliver us out of the hand of these mighty gods? 
These are the gods that smote the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. Be strong. Quit yourselves like men, O ye Philistines, that ye be not servants unto the Hebrews as they have been to you. Quit yourselves like men and fight. And the Philistines fought. And Israel was smitten. And they fled every man into his tent. And there was a very great slaughter for there fell of Israel 30,000 footmen. And the ark of God was taken. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and and Phinehas, were slain. And there ran a man of Benjamin out of the army and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes rent and with earth upon his head. And when he came, lo, Eli sat upon a seat by the wayside watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told it, all the city cried out. And when Eli heard the noise of the crying, he said, What meaneth the noise of this tumult? And the man came in hastily and told Eli. Now Eli was ninety and eight years old, and his eyes were dim that he could not see. And the man said unto Eli, I am he that came out of the army, and I fled today out of the army. And he said, What is there done, my son? And the messenger answered and said, Israel is fled before the Philistines, and there hath been a great slaughter among the people. And thy two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of the covenant is taken. And it came to pass when he made mention of the ark of God, that he fell off the seat backward by the side of the gate, and his neck brake, and he died, for he was an old man and heavy. And he had judged Israel forty years. And his daughter-in-law, Phinehas' wife, was with child, near to be delivered. And when she heard the tidings that the ark of God was taken, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, She bowed herself and travailed, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman that stood by her unto her said unto her, Fear not, for thou hast borne a son. But she answered not, neither did she regard it. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory is departed from Israel, because the ark of God was taken, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory is departed from Israel, for the ark of God is taken. Let's pray for a moment. Lord, we are thankful for this day. Lord, I am thankful for this opportunity, Lord, to share your word with our people, Lord. And, and Lord, we just read about a true life tragic event, Lord. And Lord, uh, I would just ask that you would just spend some time with us. Help us maybe to understand and glean from this passage what went wrong, Lord, and how we could maybe prevent such a thing from happening in our own time, in our own lives, in our own homes, Lord. Uh, just be with us now, Lord. And uh, just guide us and direct all that I say and do, Lord. I ask these things in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Talk about a tragic event. 34,000 soldiers dead. Um, Here we are on the eve of Memorial Day. Um, You know, it's, it's tragic to lose one life. And it's expected sometimes when you serve in the military, you know every day that your life could be put in jeopardy. But to have that many men slaughtered in one day. And remember, uh, these are men who are fighting for Israel. These are men fighting uh, for a godly reason against an ungodly enemy, the Philistines. And not only do all these men fall in battle on that day, but the two priests 
in this case, Eli's two sons, they, they not only lost their military men, but they lost two of their spiritual leaders, two of their prominent priests had fallen that day on the battlefield. And even more importantly than just the fact that uh, a battle had been lost and that people had died, the Ark of the Covenant was now in the hands of their mortal enemy. Literally, the, the, not just symbolically, the presence of God, but literally uh, the promise of God, the Ark of the Covenant, has now departed from the possession of Israel and is in the hands of the Philistines. And if this weren't enough, Eli receives news then of, of the fact that the Ark is gone, that his two sons have uh, fallen in the field, that uh, thousands of soldiers have died. But then he himself, in the grief and in the knowledge of that, falls backwards off of a stool and breaks his neck and dies. And now, the, now Eli, who served as the equivalent of the high priest, is now dead. And then when his daughter-in-law, one of his son's wives, finds out, as she, she goes into immediate birth, and uh, her child does actually live, but she dies in the course of childbirth, uh, just out of the grief and the sorrow. And what's crazy about this is, this literally has to be one of the most tragic days in the lives of so many people. Do you realize what it would be like if all of a sudden <clears throat> we lost our ability to uh, come to a church and to have an organized godly form of worship? Because that's basically what's happened here now, that the ark's gone. Uh, what it would be like if... Uh, you can't have 40,000 men fall in battle and it not be a friend, a brother, a father. Uh, but to imagine not only all that loss of life, but, all, but everyone would have been touched that day in Israel. They would have known multiple people who had perished in that battle. And then to have uh, your comfort, if your comfort was in a person, the high priest, uh, and you thought, well, at least we'll have a spiritual leader. He's dead now too. His two sons are dead now. The ark is gone. The enemy has the ark. Our soldiers have fallen, every man to his own tent. I could not imagine a more difficult situation to be put in. And one has to wonder, too, because even the Philistines were afraid when they knew that the ark of the covenant was there because they knew not that the ark itself necessarily was going to pop open with a machine gun and take out the enemy, but the power of God literally lied in there. And if God was fighting for Israel, there was, there was no enemy that could stand against them. So the question is, is what went so terribly wrong that day? What, what caused God to allow the Philistines to have the victory, to take the ark, to kill off Eli and his two sons, to bring such heartache and tragedy to a nation? Surely it must have been some grievous national sin. Surely it must have been uh, some uh, grievous, treacherous, ungodly act of all the people of Israel. But sad to say, what we're about to find out is that it, it wasn't that complicated. It wasn't that vast of a conspiracy that led to this situation. I'm going to take a few minutes, and we're just going to kind of go backwards in this story. So we were just in 1 Samuel 4. Take a look at 1 Samuel chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 11 and 14. Maybe we can figure out what led up to this situation. In 1 Samuel... Chapter 3, verses 11 to 14, it says, And the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I will do a thing in Israel at which both the ears of everyone that heareth it shall tingle. In that day I will perform against Eli all things which I have spoken concerning his house. When I begin, 
I will make an end. For I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knoweth, because his sons made themselves vile, and he restrained them not. And therefore I have sworn unto the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be purged with sacrifice nor offering forever. And then finally in 18 it says, And Samuel told him wit and hid nothing from him. And he said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seemeth good. Um, Just to back up in the story, uh, God spoke openly to Samuel and God hadn't spoken openly to a lot of people in Israel at this time. There wasn't, there wasn't a, an open vision, so to speak. But God uh, prophesied to Samuel, and Eli heard this prophecy from Samuel, the word of God. And, and all of what God said was true. But what's interesting is Samuel's, or I'm sorry, what Eli's response to Samuel was, when it says, and he, it's referring to Samuel, I'm sorry, I'm sorry it's referring to Eli. And he said, it is the Lord let him do what seemeth him good. Um, if I got a word from God that he was displeased with myself and my family, my first response wouldn't be, well, God, do what you, see, what you think is good. No, my first response would be to fall on my face and beg God's mercy, confess my sin, figure out what I'm doing wrong, find out if God's going to have some way for me to repent and try to avoid this. I'm not going to be so cavalier as... Um, as Eli was in this circumstance. But there's more to this than just this. I mean, he gets a warning from Samuel. Let's look at 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 27 and 36. It says, And there came a man of God unto Eli, and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Did I plainly appear unto the house of thy father, and when they were in Egypt in Pharaoh's house? And did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer upon my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? And did I give unto the house of thy father all the offerings made by fire of the children of Israel? Wherefore kick ye at my sacrifice and my offerings, which I have commanded in my habitation, and honorest thy sons above me to make yourselves fat with the chiefest of all the offerings of Israel, my people." We'll continue reading in a minute, but just he's basically saying, look, I chose uh, your tribe, uh, the Levites, to serve and minister unto me. And I gave you the privilege of being in charge of the sacrifice. And we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on this, but uh, the Levitical law is just replete with all the detailed specifics of the sacrifice. Um, all the different things that needed to be done for a sin offering, for a trespass offering, what the priests could keep, what the priests uh, wouldn't keep, what, what, what could be consumed by the priest, what could be consumed by his family, what, could, what had to be ate in the temple, or in this case the tabernacle, or what could be uh, taken out and uh, back to their home. God was meticulous and specific about his offering. And obviously he made provision for the priests, but... The purpose of the sacrifice was never for the betterment of the priests. It was for the honoring of God, and it was for the atonement of the sin of the person who the sacrifice was being offered to. We're so disconnected from this concept in a modern church age because we have Jesus Christ, our high priest, who made a sacrifice for us once and for all. But could you imagine 
the role of a priest prior to Christ on the cross, that you in and of yourself couldn't go before God like you can now as a born-again believer and, and directly ask and petition God for mercy, for forgiveness of your sins. And you couldn't plead the blood of Christ. You had to plead the literal blood of the sacrifice that you made. And you couldn't personally make the sacrifice on your own behalf. It had to be done meticulously and precisely, not only at a certain time, but at a certain place. And the sacrifice had to be uh, of a certain kind, and it had to meet certain restrictions. And that sacrifice had to, pre- had to be performed precisely in the manner God had requested, or it was moot. It had no value. You might have thought you walked away forgiven or atoned, but the truth of the matter was you weren't if that sacrifice had not been uh, completed properly and in the right manner. So God's saying, Wherefore kick ye at my sacrifice and mine offering, which I have commanded in my habitation, and honorest thy sons above me to make yourself fat with the chiefest of the offerings of Israel, my people. Why do you care more about getting what you need for yourself out of the office of a priest and what your sons want than you do about the importance of my sacrifice? Let's read on in in verse 30, it says, Wherefore the Lord God of Israel saith, I said indeed that thy house and the house of thy father should walk before me forever. But now the Lord saith, Be it far from me, for them that honor me will I honor, and they that despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days come that I will cut off thine arm, and the arm of thy father's house, and that there shall be not an old man in thy house. And thou shalt see an enemy in my habitation, in all the wealth which God shall give Israel, and there shall not be an old man in thy house forever. And the man of thine whom I shall not cut off from mine altar shall be to consume thine eyes and to grieve thine heart, and the increase of thine house shall die in the flower of their age." And this shall be a sign unto thee that shall come upon thy two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and one day they shall die, both of them. And I will raise up a faithful priest that do according to that which is in mine heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and shall walk before my anointed forever. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is left in thy house shall come and crouch to him for a piece of silver and a morsel of bread, and shall put me, I pray thee, and shall say, put me, I pray thee, into one of the priest's office, that I might eat a piece of bread. So here we have a man of God sent to um, Eli to forewarn him. This is before the revelation to Samuel, uh, and and there's probably a pretty good time span between these two. And God has said, look, this is wrong. I'm not going to tolerate it. And what I'm going to do, I'm going to finish. When I say I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. And judgment's going to fall on you and your sons because what you've done is more than just a personal sin. It's more than just a a lapse in judgment. You have literally befuddled the means of atonement for an entire nation. You have kicked against God and his sacrifice. And... We're going to look at one more place before we get into the heart of what this is really about tonight. And that's in 1 Samuel 2, 12, 17. We've gone progressively backwards in this story. But here's the crux of literally 
what Eli's two sons did that, that caused this whole entire problem. First Samuel chapter 2 and verse 12, it says, Now the sons of Eli were sons of Belial, and they knew not the Lord. If you have any questions about what Belial is, basically just insert the word of the devil, a child of the devil. Someone, the, the literal meaning is to be of no worth, of no consequence, of no value. But we'll talk about uh, why that's a reference to the devil in a minute. But now the sons of Eli were sons of Belial. They knew not the Lord. And the priest's custom with the people was that when a man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant came while the flesh was seething in the flesh hook of three te- I'm sorry, with a flesh hook of three teeth in his hand, and he struck it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. And all that the flesh hook brought up, the priest took for himself. So they did in Shiloh unto all the Israelites that came thither. Also, before they burnt the fat, the priest's servant came and said to the man that sacrificed, Give flesh to roast for the priest, for he will not have sodden flesh of thee but raw. And if any man said unto him, Let them not fail to burn the fat presently, and then take as much as thou soul desireth, then he would answer him, Nay, but thou shalt give it to me now, or if not, I will take it by force. And therefore the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering. Here's the crux of the problem right here. These two young men, obviously, it says they didn't know the Lord. By all accounts, we're going to, in our present church age, we'd say they were unsaved. Okay, These two men didn't know God. They were of the devil. And all they cared about, they didn't care about what God's law said. They didn't care about the uh, role that they played as priests, that the importantness was not only to honor God, but that they were there to facilitate the atonement of sin. That didn't matter to them. Uh, What's really interesting is in verse 13 it says, and the priest's custom. You know, when I went back through uh, all the Levitical law, I couldn't find any commandment in there of God about a a, a three-pronged hook and and dropping it into the cauldron or uh, into the brazier. Uh, One in there. And and the key is it was the custom. It was their custom. It it wasn't provided by God. It was something that they started, uh, that they they came up with on their own, and it just became tradition and it became custom. Um, I will say this, and this will... This will make a lot more sense a little bit uh, when we get a little bit farther into this. But uh, you got to be weary of tradition and custom that isn't based in the Bible. You know, a lot of times uh, we'll come up with a tradition or a custom because it honors or it represents or it helps facilitate us to do something that's found in the Word of God. But tradition and custom never supplant or replace the true commandments of God. Everyone accepted this as tradition. It was just a custom. It was just how we do things now. God wasn't too thrilled with that idea. And he struck into the pan of the kettle, the cauldron of the pot, and the flesh hook, and brought up the priest for himself. And then it came time, it said, and also they burnt the fat that the priest servants came and said to the man that sacrificed, give us flesh to roast. And the man said that if don't fail to presently burn the fat. It was an important part of the procedure that God was supposed to get the fat, that they were supposed to burn the fat entirely, that certain parts of the sacrifice could not remain at all, had to be utterly burnt. And of that that was able to be remained, it had to be consumed before the next day. And they said, no, 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 we, we don't want to eat sodden. We don't want to eat boiled meat. 
Uh, we, just give us that nice flank steak right there. Give us that nice cut of meat right there. And they would say, well, at the very least, just wait till the, just wait till the fat of it has been melted away and burned away as a sacrifice. Just do that for me really quick. No, no, we'll take it now. And not only did the priests themselves not have the guts to come and do this, they sent their servant to do it. And they said they would take it by force. Could you imagine living in an economy where the only way you could get your sins forgiven or atoned for was for you to bring a sacrifice and that it had to be meticulously executed in a, in a way in which God had prescribed by a person put into a priesthood position, and it didn't matter what, your, what was in your heart. It didn't matter how sorrowful you, sour, uh, you were. Uh, it didn't matter uh, how contrite you were. If it wasn't executed properly, your sins were not atoned. And here were these men disobediently befuddling the will of God and stopping these people uh, from getting the atonement that they needed. Um, and, uh, it's, and for this reason... The sins of the young men were great before the Lord. And worst of all, people started to abhor. They started hating the idea of sacrificing to God. Uh, wouldn't, wouldn't you, you know, we all talk about the possibility in, the, in these latter days that, oh, you know, they, they're going to come after us. They're going to bar the doors of church. We're going to be prison, imprisoned or jailed for preaching or for attending church. Could you imagine the day coming when it wasn't the man who barred the door, but it was the man in the pulpit who made church so abhorrent to you that you couldn't stand to have to go to church? I mean, you want to go to church. You want to learn about God. You want to worship God. You want to fellowship with believers. But you couldn't just stomach it because you knew that there was going to be all this terrible sin and wickedness that was happening within the church. God forbid that we would have to uh, confront that. But that's what happened here. That's what happened here. So as I read through all this, as I thought about all this, and I realized that here was Eli and his two sons. And obviously these two sons, they were of the devil. They weren't of God. But that's not an excuse. Eli himself was aware of what they were doing. But we, we know that he, he basically tacitly allowed it to happen. He didn't intervene when God told him to intervene. Uh, they had no personal standards. He, Eli didn't enforce any personal standards. And so I want to spend a few minutes and I want to talk about a subject that uh, we kind of shy away from sometimes because there's a big misunderstanding about it. But I want to talk about some standards. I want to talk about some personal standards. Now, don't tune me out. Don't get upset. I'm not going to stand up here and give you a list of what I think your standards should be. But in, I, in my study, I figured out that I don't really understand what the Bible has to say about standards. I didn't really understand what standards were. I, I, I looked at them more like traditions and customs. And we can all point back to some things where uh, we can say, oh, well, certain churches or certain uh, camps had certain standards, and, and those are outdated or those are legalistic. But the first thing I'll say is this. A standard is not something by which you get to heaven. A standard isn't, by some, isn't, by, isn't something by which if you do it or don't do it, you're a better Christian, uh, that you're closer to God per se, strictly because you have a standard and follow a standard. Standards in and of themselves uh, don't, don't get you saved. Standards in and of themselves uh, are just customs and traditions if not understood and applied properly. So I just wanted to take the remainder of the time that I have and just talk a little bit about what standards really are and what God's word has to say about it. Now, 
I think the biggest problem that uh, Eli and his sons faced and that you and I all face in this day and age, especially now that we have the grace of God, we're, we're not going to lose our salvation if we don't have certain standards. God has biblical precedent and law that he's set up that we're all supposed to follow. But we do have the grace of God if we're saved. And, and we're not in jeopardy of hell because we don't follow God's standards or we don't follow our own standards. But the problem is there are consequences for our sins. And there are consequences for our lack of standards. And the fact that Eli's sons didn't have personal standards and that Eli himself didn't have household standards not only caused them to lose their lives and their ability to serve God, but they ended up stymieing the entire nation's ability to, to serve and honor God and left 40,000 men dead on the battlefield. I don't know about you, but I don't want to have that responsibility. I don't, want to, I don't want my sons or daughters to die someday because I, as their father, didn't provide a household standard. I don't want to find myself dead on the side of the road uh, or being punished by God because I didn't have certain standards. And I definitely don't want to see my church family or a whole nation be deprived of their relationship with God because of my lack of of standards. Um, I just want to share with you a verse from, you don't have to turn there, but uh, this was in the the passage uh, a couple weeks ago when Pastor Marshall was teaching out of 2 Samuel. This is in chapter 12, and this is in reference to what we just came through with uh, David and Bathsheba. And remember, Nathan came, and you are the man. And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin, thou shalt not die. How be it, because this deed, because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born unto you shall surely die. I just want to pull this forward a little bit because some of you are going to have a hang up and you're going to say, well, this is all Old Testament stuff. This is all before the cross. I'm in the grace of God. I'm saved. But you know what? There was a key thing there. When, when, when David repented, Nathan said, The Lord also hath put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die. And that's the equivalent of like saying right now, if you, if you, don't, if you have some terrible sin in your life, if you don't meet God's standards, you know what? You're not going to go to hell for that. If you're saved, you're on your way to heaven. How you live your life isn't going to change whether you go to heaven or hell once you've accepted Christ as your personal Savior. So you might not die. You might not end up in hell. But how be it because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. And we know that more than just the fact that the child died, but the sword never departed from David's household and the whole situation with Absalom and what happened to his wives and concubines, what David had done in private, God had punished openly. There are consequences for our sin. There are deadly consequences for our sin. And though you might take solace in the fact that, oh, I'm, I'm still heaven bound, God will forgive me, God has mercy, there will still be consequences for your sin. And sadly, those consequences might not always directly affect you. They might affect your family, just like David lost a son, just like Eli lost two sons. They might affect a nation. Um, what's interesting is that phrase in there uh, that Nathan said to David, hath put away thy sin. Um, put away is a, is a great thing to do a Bible study on. You know, quite often uh, uh, 
you'll see they'll say, uh, put away the idols from amongst you, put away uh, different things. And what's the first thing you instinctively think of? I know this is what I thought of when I hear that phrase, put away. You think of like when you were a child or you're telling your child, okay, it's time to put that away. It's dinner time. Put the computer away. Put the game away. Okay, pick up your toys. Put them away. And basically when you see that put away, you think to yourself, well, I'm just going to, I'm not going to do it right now. I'm just going to put it away somewhere and then it's going to be there when I need it the next time. That's not what the Bible is saying when it talks about put away. It means to remove it entirely, to get rid of it, to put it away from you, to separate yourself from that thing that you're putting away. Not putting it on a shelf in its place so it's there the next time you want it but to totally separate yourself, to put it away, to put it far from you. And what's interesting is this whole concept of position and distance and being far away or being close to something has a lot to do with the biblical meaning of what standards are. Um, just real quick, uh, before I delve in a little bit further, 2 Corinthians 6, 12, verses, uh, chapter 6, verses 12 through 17, and uh, This is interesting. Paul is saying, ye are not straightened in us, but ye are straightened in your own bowels. What what he's saying is, is, look, you're not going to do right based on what I tell you or what an apostle Paul tells you, but it's going to be of your own accord. It's going to be in your own bowels. You're going to straighten out what you need to straighten out with God inside yourself. And it says, now for a recompense in the same... And Paul says in parentheses, I speak as unto my children, be ye also enlarged. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And here's that uh, only New Testament reference to Belial. And what concord hath Christ with Belial? What concord? A concord is when you make an agreement, a covenant, an arrangement. Uh, what, what kind of accord, what kind of peace agreement does God have with the devil? He doesn't have one, and neither should we. Or part, or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God, as God had said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them. Be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not unclean things, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. So this is the reason why we need standards. Um, You know, there's a lot of other contexts for being unequally yoked and things of that nature. But you know what? The world has its own set of standards, okay, for good or for bad. They have their own set of standards. We don't need to be part of those standards. We don't need to be associated with those standards. We don't need to be constrained by those standards. We need to have our own set of standards. And those standards need to be based in biblical things. So before we talk about what the Bible literally has to say about standards, I'm just going to give you a practical illustration about the purpose of a standard. So you have to identify something that you don't want to have happen, something that you're trying to avoid, something that is cataclysmic. So, for example, uh, most roads are not one way. They're two-way. There's oncoming traffic. And even the world decides that a bad thing would be to have a head-on collision with, a, with an oncoming car. So the standard is, well, I'm sorry, 
the object that you're trying to avoid have happening is a head-on collision. It would be bad for you. It would be bad for the person you hit. It needs to be avoided. So in an attempt to avoid head-on collisions, they've come up with a standard. A lot of roads have a concrete median separating the oncoming traffic from the traffic on the other side. Now, that's a pretty good standard because if, if all you're trying to do is keep from hitting the oncoming car, if you've ever bumped up against one of those things, those concrete barriers do a pretty good job of stopping you from crossing over. Now, it's not recommended that you hit a concrete barrier at 60 miles per hour. It will do some damage. You will not be happy, but you will have at least had a standard that prevented you from doing that thing which you didn't want to do, which was to go head on with another vehicle. Now, some people don't rely solely on that particular standard. A lot of the roads I drive on, they'll have that concrete barrier, but I'm not going to attempt to get to that concrete barrier. They'll have this thing called a rumble strip, the, these grooves in the road just before you hit the barrier that shake your car and wake you up. And uh, some people have that as a standard. They'll say, you know what, I'll drive as close to the left as I can, but if I get that rumble strip, I know to get over because I don't want to hit the wall because I don't want to hit the oncoming car. There's also, uh, just the other, just to the right of that rumble strip, there's usually a solid white or yellow line. And most people have a standard that they're going to stay on that right-hand side of that white or yellow line. That it's only by some rare distraction or they fall asleep that they cross that line and hit the rumble strip. I know some people who will only drive in the middle lane. That's their standard. They don't want to worry about being in that left-hand lane and, and having to jerk over all of a sudden and cross the white or the yellow line or worry about the rumble strip. And I know some people who want to get as far away, and they're all the way over to the right. Now, of course, if you go too far to the right, you're in the same problem, too. You're off the road. You're in the ditch. But the point I'm making is this, is standards serve a practical purpose. They tell you where you don't want to be, and they tell you what you're going to do to keep from getting where you're going to be. Okay? That's plain and simple. But you know what? There's even more to standards than that. Amazing stuff what the Bible can do. I'm going to just real quick for sake of time, I'm going to give you the, the, the Webster's Dictionary definition, and then we're going to march right into the biblical definition, and then I'm going to take five or ten minutes just to see where we go with this. All right, what, is, what does the dictionary have to say? Number one entry in the dictionary. It's amazing that, that the dictionary, who, who God did not write, last time I checked, he didn't inspire Webster, or the dictionary, but uh, it sure has a lot of truth in it sometimes that points to God. So the number one entry for the definition of the word standards is a conspicuous object, such as a banner, which was formerly carried atop of a pole and used to mark a rallying point, especially in battle, or to serve as an emblem. Number two, a long, narrow, tapering flag that is personal to an individual or a corporation, and it usually bears a heraldic device, meaning like a symbol, uh, maybe uh, the family symbol is a lion, or it's uh, you know uh, the, the setting sun or the rising sun, but some kind of a, a graphic representation that represented a family. It's a personal thing with a family orientation, kind of weird. We'll see what that means in a minute. Uh, number, entry number three in the dictionary says, something which is established by an authority, which is a general consent or a model or an example of what is acceptable. Number four says, something set up and established by an authority as a rule of measurement, quantity, weight, 
extent, value, or quality. And then finally it says, it, it, standards are in result, number five, the fineness and the legally fixed weight and purity of metal used in coins, the, the basis of value of a monetary system such as the gold standard. The word standard appears in the Bible 18 times. And it's kind of funny how some of you remember from other times that I've taught or preached, the Bible is um, so well constructed and thought out, so well laid out, and sometimes we just pick and choose what we look at, and we don't look at the broader picture of the fact that there is one author of the Bible, though, though it was penned maybe by the hands of multiple men inspired by God. But if you just do a simple Bible search of the word standard, and you look at it chronologically, it the word only appears in the Bible 18 times, and it only appears in three distinct places chronologically. The first area in which we'll find it is in Numbers, and then we find it again mentioned several times in Isaiah, and then finally in Jeremiah. And look, I know what you're going to say, but just bear with me here because you're going. This is, I think, this is pretty fascinating that God did this. You're saying, well, wait a minute. There's nothing in the Bible that says you need to have standards, that you need to have rules. That's not the standard they're talking about. Well, is it? I don't know. It's talking about a lot of the things that the Webster said it was about, but let's just read them. So in uh, the first mention uh, is in Numbers 152. And it's really interesting that all three of these verses that are in Numbers, I'll, I'll just read it to you. And the children of Israel shall pitch their tents every man by his own camp and every man by his own standard throughout their hosts. Every man of the children of Israel shall pitch by his own standard with the ensign of their father's house far off about the tabernacle of the congregation shall they pitch. So just so you understand the context of what's going on here, uh, nation of Israel, as they are traveling in the wilderness, they're doing, when God says, okay, stop, they're supposed to pitch the tabernacle, they're supposed to set it up, and all the, and all the tribes are supposed to uh, make their encampments in a specific place. God said the tribe of Judah will be here, uh, the tribe of Benjamin will be there. But they were supposed to pitch their ensign in a certain place for their tribe. And it was literally like a pole, a flag, a banner, and it would have a, a symbol that could be seen from far off, and they would say, okay, if I'm of the house of Judah, that's where we need to be. So what's interesting is there was a personal banner and there was a family banner, and it let me know where I was supposed to be. What it also let me know was not where I was supposed to be alone, but it also let me know where I was afar off from the temple. It let me know where I was supposed to be in my relationship to God. The tabernacle was here. It was holy. This is God. And my, my family standard and my personal standard was going to be pitched in a place that God had prescribed, and it was going to be at a certain distance in place from God's place of worship. When you have personal standards, they need to be your own. You need to have your own personal banner or standard. And you need to have a household banner or standard that's not just for you, but for those in your family. And when you have that standard, whatever it may be, that standard is, first and foremost, to show you where you need to be in relationship to where God wants you to be and where he is. It also tells you where you're supposed to be and where you're not supposed to be. If you're a vibe of Benjamin, you don't go find 
the banner of Dan and hang out over there. That's not where you pitch your tent. God has a purpose for you. And first and foremost, it's in the place where he wants you to be. And it's a place that's in proximity to where he is. And that's the first and foremost important thing about having a personal standard and a family standard is it tells you where you are supposed to be in relationship to God. So when you're evaluating your personal standards, think of that. Think of it in the, it needs to be something that tells you where you're supposed to be at that particular time and where and how far off you are from where you're supposed to be and how far off you are from where God is. Um, Isaiah 49.22, it says, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up mine hand to the Gentiles and set up my standard to the people, and they shall bring thy sons in their arms, and thy daughters shall be carried upon their shoulders. Here's an interesting thing. So all the other previous mentions of standard all have to do literally about where the children of Israel are supposed to set their standards in camp. But here the Lord's talking about uh, it says, God himself, behold, I, God, will lift up my hand to the Gentiles and set my standards to the people. Um, when we have standards, when we have God's standards, and that's just something else too, God has standards. He just said his standard. God has a standard. God wants to be lifted up and wants his standards to be lifted up, not just to protect you and your family, uh, not just to have you have position and understanding and where you should be and where your relationship with God is, but he wants it there as a means to call the lost, to call the Gentile, that he wants the world to see your standards, or more specifically, his standards, and have that to be a means by which the lost are drawn to him. The third and final section that we find the word standard is in the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah 59:19 says, So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy shall come in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against him. Having standards is a protection against the enemy. Having a standard in your life is what's going to protect you from falling into the traps of the devil. It's going to protect you from the attacks of this world, the attacks of the flesh. Uh, standards are a means of protection. Isaiah 62, 2.10 says, um, Go through, go through the gates, prepare ye the way of the people, cast up, cast up the highway, gather out the stones, lift up a standard before the people. What I see here is that having standards is a way for us to prepare the way forward for other believers. Look, we're not all going to have the same standards, and some of us are going to have uh, standards that are stricter in some areas than others, but your standards should be something that are clearly visible to other believers that help them on that pathway to God, that helps remove those stones in the way, that stumbling gate. Your banner your standard might sometimes be the closest thing that they can see that they know is where, where, where to find God, where to get out of the trouble they're in. How many times have you found yourself in a bad situation spiritually or physically and you've looked to see the standard that someone else has set and you said, you know what, I know why I'm in this problem. I know what's causing this in my life. I just don't know how to get away from it. I just don't know what I should do. 
look towards that standard of someone who isn't experiencing that problem, who has set a standard that's a clear path forward to get past that, over that, through that, and be that standard for the other believers too, to prepare a pathway. If you've gone through something, if you've gone through alcoholism, and you've, by the grace of God, overcome that, then you should probably have some standards in your life so that you never go back to that. But your standards should also be a way forward for the other newer, weaker brother in Christ who might just now be trying to get out of that same addiction or that same problem. You need to show that there is a way forward. You need to have a standard set, if for no other reason than to show that it's capable to overcome and to show a pathway through for other believers. In Jeremiah 52, it says, Boldly set your standard. Let it be known to all. Do not conceal it. It is a reminder that Satan has been defeated and that through Christ you have victory. The verse says, Declare ye among the nations and publish and set up a standard. Publish and conceal not. Say Babylon is taken. Bel is confounded. Meredek is broken in pieces. Her idols are confounded. Her images are broken in pieces. You know what? When you have a standard, it's great if you have a standard. It's great if you adhere to your standards. But it needs to be there like I said, for fellow believers to find a way forward. But you don't conceal your standards because your standards are the way to have victory over the flesh, over the world, and to conquer Satan. And you need to be bold in your standards. Now, just real quick in the time that I have left, I'm going to try to give you some real practical things here. So some things you have to think about. Standards work in a whole lot of different ways we most often think of standards as, well, that's what I won't do. Don't touch this. Don't look at that. Don't say that. And that's good. That's true. You should have standards that that determine what you won't do in your life, that there are certain things you you won't go beyond. And you know what? The standard is like literally that banner. And it's like, I don't want to go over there and be in that sin So I'm going to plan a standard. My standard is right here. Your standard might be 10 feet this way. It might be 20 feet that way. But you're going to plan a standard somewhere. And some days you're going to be right next to that standard. Some days you're going to be a few feet away from that standard in this direction, closer to the sin that it's there to prevent. Some days you're going to be all the way over here. But that standard is your constant reminder of what where you want to be. It doesn't mean you're always going to achieve it. It doesn't always mean you're going to adhere to it. But you better have a standard of some kind. Um, I was talking with uh, Corey Sullenberger, who uh, works at the airport and does security there. And uh, if, you're, if you have a military background, if you have a government background, they have SOP, Standard Operating Procedure. If this were to happen, this is what we're going to do. If the fire alarm goes off, then, you know, uh, Joe, you have your assigned position. I go here, you go there. We lock that exit. We open this door. This guy calls this. This guy does that. For every possible contingency, there is a standard operating procedure. There is a standard by which we will respond to a certain action. If you don't have a standard in your life of how you're going to act or react or respond to a certain circumstance, I got bad news for you. You're going to fail, and you're going to fail miserably. And uh, I'll, I'll talk to the, to the men in here and the young men especially for just a quick second. Um, if you think you have some standards about how you're going to conduct yourself physically with a young lady or a woman, if you can't set standards and maintain standards, 
when there is no physical female present, you can't control your eyes, you can't control what you see and do. Trust me, men, when confronted with a physical lady next to you, your standards, your ability to resist is ten times harder than, than what it would be if she wasn't physically present. So what I'm saying without being too crass is, if you don't have a plan in place, if you don't have a standard in place that you can't adhere to when it's the untangible, when it's, when it's just you looking at an image on a screen or looking at a picture or seeing someone passing by, if you can't set a standard and keep that standard, you will be overtaken when you have other opportunities. Plain and simple. Plain and simple. And that holds true with anything. If you don't even have the simplest of standards that you can adhere to, the most basic and easily obtainable things, you will fall. You will be overtaken in your sin. And worse yet, without the presence of that standard and and knowing what's expected when that circumstance comes, without you having that example for your family, you know, we all know this. Anyone of any age knows this. Each, each successive generation, their standards become uh, weakened. And you know what? What's kind of funny is this. Uh, I was talking with someone the other day, and they were talking about standards of the 50s and the 60s or, and in the 70s and 80s when I grew up. And it's like, oh, that's all old fuddy-duddy. And, and those, those standards, they don't make any sense in this day and age. You know what? The reason some of those standards seem willy-nilly and legalistic and goofy is because the level of sin in this world was a little bit less, and so the standard needed to stand up against that wasn't as drastic as the things that go on nowadays. Uh, your standards, unfortunately, the world is, gonna, is going to make some of them obsolete. Things are going to be, you're going to have certain standards, and they're going to be moot because the world's gone so far past that, and, and you have no hope uh, of even trying to keep certain standards anymore. You're going to just have to struggle with the grace of God to do the best you can in the circumstances that you are in. Because unfortunately, we're not going to barricade ourselves in a monastery or in a cave somewhere. We're going to get confronted and bombarded by this. But we need to have standards. And maybe our standards aren't going to be as strict or intolerant as some standards were in the past. And, I, and I'm, saying, I'm not saying they shouldn't be, but I'm saying you've got to have obtainable standards. Um, that's the other thing, too. Standards aren't stationary. Sometimes standards aren't just to prohibit you with things. Standards should be set of where you want to be. If you don't currently read your Bible at all, then you need to set a standard that says, I'm going to read my Bible. If you're already reading your Bible and you're not reading it consistently, then you need to set a standard of exactly how long and how often and when and be precise, have your standing operate, standard operating procedure of when you're going to read your Bible. And here's the thing. Standards are somewhat like goals. If I set the flag here and I say, this is the standard I've set for myself and I've been steadfast and I've been able to achieve that, there's nothing wrong with moving that standard a little bit closer to God and saying, you know what, I might not always be able to keep the standard, but that's where God wants me to be, and I'm going to be that much closer, and so I'm going to set standards. So standards not only are about things we don't want to do, they're about the things we do want to do. There, there are ways in which we can improve ourselves. Uh, the world and sin and the devil has this thing called incrementalism or progressivism. Um, the devil didn't, didn't just wake up one morning and, and convince someone, today's the day to murder. Today's the day to rape. Today's the day to, to just uh, cheat on my wife. No, it's incrementally. It's progressive. 
he finds that small little thing and he challenges your standard or the fact that you have a lack of a standard in that area and it's like, just come a little bit over here. I'm not asking you to leave God. You can still see God. He's just right there. Just come a little bit over here. And then, okay, I got you there. Come over here. Well, come over here. I mean, I don't know, uh, I wouldn't necessarily recommend this, but there's uh, some extensive interviews they did with Jeffrey Dahmer. He didn't wake up one day and decide he was going to eat people, okay? He'll, he'll explain to you the progression of his sin and how he got from little quaint things that you and I probably do all the time that we know aren't right to literally murder, rape, and eating human flesh, okay? It's incrementalism. It's progression. It's the lack of a standard. And you're not always going to be able to keep your standards. You might need to adjust your standards. You know what? Some standards you even can abandon. What? I can abandon my standards? When I was dating my wife, we had certain standards about how close we would physically be to each other, whether we would be chaperoned or unchaperoned. I have good news. Once we got married, I abandoned those standards. I didn't have to follow them anymore. It's amazing how that works. But you know what? That's because I did it by God's standard, by God's plan for what he had. And so setting standards sometimes often are the means by which we can enjoy the fruits and the benefits of the things God has planned for us, but it's our way to protect ourselves and keep us from doing that. The other thing that I would caution you to on this, when it comes to setting standards, question everything. So, for example... um, and I don't want to call anybody's name out or embarrass anyone, but I had a discussion with someone not too long ago, and their standard, they, they were asking about a standard when it came to music and how much music they would listen to and what kind of music they would listen to. And I asked that individual, I said, well, why do you listen to music at all? Why do you listen to any music at all? Well, do, you, do you do it because you're sad? Do you do it because you want to pump yourself up? Do you do it to escape? Do you, is it your hobby? Do you do it to mind, to numb your mind? You know, we need to think about why we do things in the first place. And maybe we need to set a standard about why we're going to do something at all. Not, I mean, it's one thing to say, oh, I only listen to godly music. Yeah, but I lock myself in my room because I'm an emotional wreck and, and I stay up till three in the morning listening to all the, those great hymns and getting pumped up inside. You know what? Set a standard. You know, maybe your problem isn't, maybe your problem isn't how much music or what kind of music you listen to, but maybe what you're doing to solve your problem shouldn't be music. Maybe your standards should be entirely different than what you think. Um, I'll, I'll just touch on some things that I know people are going to get upset about. Uh, you know, oh, I don't watch R-rated movies. Oh, I don't go to movie theaters. Yeah, but if you're up until like six in the morning binging Netflix, I don't care if you're watching uh, The Life of Christ. You know, I, if God made his own movie, like if they, like somebody told me, oh, well, they have like, I have VidAngel and it takes out all the bad words. Okay, well, first off, I'm smart enough to know what the guy's saying. If it says uh, blankety blank pancakes, I know what he was saying, okay? I know what he was saying. It doesn't matter, you know? But that, but the point I'm making is, is, is sometimes we set standards to appease ourselves. And I'm not saying that you should or shouldn't watch movies. I'm not telling you that you're evil and wicked if you do. But you need to set some standards as to whether or not you should even be watching movies and when you're watching movies and who you're watching movies with. And it all harkens back to those three things that we saw in the Bible about where standards are mentioned. You need to have 
personal standards. And look, don't be afraid. You realize that Eli's children were long grown and probably not living in the house when all this happened. Now, it probably started at an early age, too. But parents, don't be afraid to set standards for your children. And don't be afraid to have standards that you force on your children, or or at least that your children know you have, even when they're in adulthood, okay? You know, there are some issues. For the most part, I've been blessed. My daughter's a a great Christian girl. I'm happy and pleased with the choices she makes. But some of her standards are not my standards. But we're talking about whether she drives in the left-hand lane or drives in the middle lane. We're not talking about the fact that she's bumping up against the curb every day. But you know what? I still make it known to her what my standards are. I'm not mad at her. I'm not disapproving her. But she knows clear and well where my banner is. And that my banner is always going to be there. And that, you know what, her banner might be over here, but I'm not going to pick up my banner so I can be closer to my daughter and take me farther away from God. My banner is going to be where God is. It keeps me as close to God as I can be. All right? And then what was this? So have your personal standards in your own life. Protect yourself. Grow in Christ. Have them for your household. And look, here's another thing too. Uh, don't be afraid to have standards that you can't always keep. And don't be afraid to appear as a hypocrite uh, before your kids. Because guess what? The ultimate standard isn't you and how well you live your life. It's God and what his standard is. And all that matters is, is that you're, you're establishing for yourself and for your children that there is something greater and better and more powerful than me, which is God. And that even if I fail Minute to minute, hour by hour, day by day, there's still a standard that's right. There's still a place where I should be, even if I'm not there. And make that standard known. And make that standard there clearly visible for other believers. You know what? Some of us don't always struggle with the same things. Uh, I use the example of alcoholism. There are some people in here who fought a terrible, debilitating battle against alcoholism. It ruined their lives physically. It ruined their marital relationships. It cost them all sorts of problems. And you know what? They're going to have standards concerning alcohol much stricter than mine. They're not going to go within 100 feet of where alcohol is. My wife and I were at a restaurant the other day, and I didn't realize it, but there was a bar in the restaurant. Oh, Brother Ron went to a restaurant. They had a bar in it. Look, it doesn't bother me. I've never had alcohol. Uh, well, I'm sorry. I shouldn't lie. When I was a teenager, I tried alcohol. But I don't have a problem with alcohol. I haven't drank alcohol in almost 40-some years. So it, it doesn't have an effect on me. Now, I'm not going to go to a bar. I'm not going to go to parties where they serve alcohol. I've got certain standards. And, I, and, I, and for the sake of other believers, I'm not going to take a brother to a place where they're just slamming down drinks left and right, where they're playing music that's going to uh, bring back uh, old memories to them. But uh, set standards that are there for other believers to have. And don't judge a brother because he has a stricter standard or a weaker standard. Because chances are, in some other area, he's 10 times closer to God than you. And in some other area, you're 20 times farther away from God than he is. But don't be afraid to have standards. Don't be afraid to have godly biblical standards. And don't be afraid to share them with other believers and with friends. And you know what? Those of you, whether you go beyond your family, go to the body of believers. Um, we all like to associate with the families and friends that we have here in church. 
you need to have that standard even amongst that group. I see so many problems sometimes, especially with young men. It's like, well, I'm hanging out with all these Christian brothers, and and, and if we're doing it together, then it must be godly, because I know one of us has a standard about something. You know what? It doesn't work that way. You need to have a set of standards. And here's a crazy idea. Sit down with your friends, the people you spend the most time with, and say, hey, guys, you know what? I think we need to set some biblical standards in our lives. That, that This is what I want to do in my life. I don't know what you want to do in your life. But when we're together, let's edify each other. Let's edify God. Let's come up with some standards about what we're going to do. Uh, teens aren't much different than they were uh, when I was a teen. It's like you sit around for four hours talking about, well, what do you guys want to do? I don't know. What do you want to do? What do you want to do? Have some standards about what you're going to do with your time. Uh, have them be godly standards. Uh, reach some achievements. And remember, too, your standards are a, a lighthouse, a literal banner that leads the lost to Christ. The day will come when someone will ask, well, why, why don't you do what you don't do? Why do you do what you do do? Or I've noticed that when such and such happens, you don't do this or you don't do that. Like I've never had to tell anyone that I don't cuss. They figured it out pretty quickly. And I've never had to tell anyone, don't cuss around me. Because if they're around me for more than about 20 minutes, they figure out something's a little bit different. Now they'll, they'll, they'll cuss on their own when they're not around me. And I've even had people say, oh, oh, don't, don't, they'll say to someone else, don't say that around him. Don't talk like that around him. And why? Because I, I got in their face and said, cussing is wrong, you'll go to hell if you cuss. No, my standard, my banner, my standard was visible for them to see without me having to say, that's my standard, see my standard, I got my standard, follow my standard. But your standards are there, people do see your standards, and they are a way to lead the lost to Christ. They are what separates you, they are what keeps you from being unequally yoked. And then, the most important thing is your standards and God's standards, they're a shield and they're a defense against the attacks of the enemy. Having standards makes it all the more difficult for the world, for your flesh, and for the devil to attack you. doesn't mean they're not going to attack you. It just means they're going to have to come up with a little bit better way. You know, we'll use my little silly analogy about the, the concrete barrier. If someone was trying to break into your house or trying to do you harm, and you said, well... I'm on this side of the white line. If you're going to hurt me, you're going to have to cross the white line. Well, they're going to cross the white line and they're going to hurt you. Well, if I put a concrete barrier between them and myself, I got a little bit more of a defense. I got a little bit more of a chance that maybe they're going to just keep going down the road and find the guy who's relying on the white line or the, or the paper shield. And ultimately, your standards, if they're God's standards, you have the Holy Spirit, you have Jesus Christ, you have God as your standard bearer. And where your standards fall short, it says his standards, God's standards, will be a shield and a protection for you. And then lastly, here's the beauty part. This last one talking about, and I understand that Jeremiah is talking about future events and about the fall of Babylon, but it's true to us. Declare ye among the nations and publish and set up a standard. Publish and conceal not. Say, Babylon is taken, Bel is confounded, Merdok is broken in pieces, her idols are confounded, her images are broken in pieces. You have the power of God in you. You have the standard of God. And guess what? We win. He wins. Your standards 
can destroy the Babylons of this world. They can defeat Satan. They can tear down idols. They can leave them crushed in pieces. You can have victory in this life. So often as Christians, it's like, Lord, just get me through this day. Come and take us out of this world, Lord. It's getting worse every day. No, we can be victorious in Christ. And we can have that victory through holding up his banner, his standard. When we sing the song, you know, rally under the banner of the cross, think about that. A banner is a standard. It has a symbol on it that represents your God, your family, and you personally. So have standards that are first and foremost God's standards that represent your God and this Bible. If you, if you, if you don't know what standards you should have in your life, then I won't tell you my standards, but I can find about 50 of them right here beyond a shadow of a doubt that are God's standards for you and your life. And here's the thing. You're going to need personal standards if you're ever going to hope to achieve godly standards. The only way you're going to keep God's law is to first uh, set and adhere to personal standards. Have standards for your family. Because look, bottom line is this. What happened to Eli and his sons in the nation of Israel will happen, has happened, and will continue to happen in the lives of modern-day believers. You will destroy yourself. God will take you out. God will take your family out. God will take out the ability for you and your family to serve God. God will take out as God will punish you and take out as many other believers in the process as he can. And I'm talking about God. I'm not talking about the devil. Uh, the devil, he's got his own plans to do that as often as he can. He can't snatch us from hell. He can't take us out of the hand of God. But he surely can ruin our reputation. He can surely, uh, like uh, Nathan said, be a cause for blaspheme of the nations against God. Don't be a cause for blaspheming against God. Just closing a word of prayer. Lord, I am so thankful for your goodness and your grace. And I'm thankful, Lord, that you have given us a book that clearly states what you expect, what you consider to be holy, what you want us to obtain. And Lord, truth be known, there are some aspects of your law that in the flesh I'll never obtain, but I've obtained them through Jesus Christ. And Lord, I just have to now, my soul's right with you, my spirit's right with you, but this flesh, this world, the devil, they're constantly attacking me. And you provided a way and a means by which I can have standard. I can have your standard. I can have personal standards. I can have family standards. And I don't have them for the sake of having standards. I have them, Lord, because I want to be close to you. I always want to know if I've gotten too far away from you, and I want to get as close to you as I possibly can. Lord, I just ask that you would help us each, Lord, to just root out the wickedness in our lives, to set up a standard, Lord, to be that example to our households, to be pleasing to you, Lord. And, Lord, we just thank you and we love you. We ask your blessing, Lord. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.